Hi everyone. Good afternoon. I hope you have enjoyed our lunch. I feel more energized. <laughs> sort of come to this second session. Victor, you can come join me here. Uh, this project is um, this presentation actually draws from a project that uh, has been funded by the British Academy, um, and uh, it started in December 2012, um, uh, and uh, it was focused on sort of mapping women academics' careers in uh, Pakistan. Uh, as um, uh, I, I mean, introduced me that I, I have worked in Pakistan for about nearly, I think, about 20 years in Pakistan, higher education and universities. So my experience there and my work mostly in research was about gender and leadership because I felt that in that particular cultural and religious society, uh, women were having experiences which were constraining their access to top leadership positions. And then I moved to UK uh, in 2003 and uh, realized that constraints in a Western society in some ways were worse than they were in the Pakistan <laughs> society. <laughs> so uh, that really started further work in, in this particularly gender and leadership. So. Uh, uh, it, uh, it emerges that gender is not really an issue in developing countries or Muslim countries or Christian countries or underdeveloped countries. I think it is, it is a global phenomenon and it, it gets more and more complex. It's not a simple straightforward thing that even if we, wherever we look at the statistics and the situations, it gets more and more complex. The more liberal the societies are, the more democratic the societies claim to be, the worse <coughs> seems to be the situation of women uh, in accessing full equality and particularly in accessing positions of power which has association with leadership roles. So, <coughs> this uh, project in Pakistan which, I, uh, which was funded by the British Academy and uh, where I have colleagues from University of Leicester with me and Victoria shown me from Institute of Education with me. Uh, it, I think it has been a good learning experience for the Western colleagues as well, getting in a sort of a comparative perspective of how gender is constructed in that particular context and how gender is experienced there. Because there are a lot of assumptions about gender in different societies and generally till we get the first-hand knowledge of the societies, it's very, 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 very challenging to construct gender from outside um, and seeing, experiencing it from inside the cultural context. So we will try to share some of our findings, experiences of this project. Yeah, and if you can introduce yourself now. Yes, okay. Yeah, so I'm, as, as everybody knows, my name is Victoria and um, Saida and I kind of go back a little time, around about 2009 I think it was, when we met in Belmas, which is the British um, Educational Leadership Administration um, Conference, I think it is. And um, we met there and uh, I approached, you know, we had some discussions about different things. I approached Saida and said, let's, let's meet up. Wouldn't it be good to do something, you know, together? And um, as, a, as a woman visibly black and, and wanted to do something, and, and a woman who's, who's from an Asian background, that would be quite nice to bring something together. And so. Um, We've, we've spent some time thinking about this, but the key thing for me is that I've never been to Pakistan. I've never been to Pakistan. I've always identified as a feminist, and it was my first time. It was my first time to work in the project. And I think as we unpack 
um, through the presentation, what was what was that like? And it was, um, I had no fear, I didn't have any fear at all. Why should I have fear? To me it was always doing some work around gender. Um, I didn't look at the bigger picture thinking, well, you know, there's lots and lots of troublesome stuff in Pakistan because at the end of the day it's a, a large country. But it was, it, was, it was really, 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 really interesting to look at gender and the politics of gender within Pakistan and then also then look at what was actually going on in the UK. And for me, I felt that the, what was going on in Pakistan was actually more progressive than what I was experiencing as a woman within um, the UK. But I think our work, as we unpack it in the moment, we'll be able to talk about that. So that's just a little bit about me. <coughs> So I should just say that um, yes. that um, Victoria and Saida have offered to circulate the slides um, afterwards, so you don't have them in your in your packs, but you don't yeah. need to sort of write down everything. Apologies, because we were actually uh, out of the country and couldn't sort of finalize the presentation. They'll go up on the website now. Yeah, so just oh, okay. actually completed it this morning, so didn't have time to print it out and bring the printouts. But it will go on your website and you can, uh, I mean, printouts can be circulated if people want really printouts. Uh, Thank you. So, uh, this project, we have four partner universities in Pakistan. Pakistan has a sort of uh, two systems uh, of educational system. One is the segregated single sex and one is sort of co-ed system. So, uh, we did the, this project aims to sort of look at the women's career progression routes and experiences in those both the systems, in the co-educational institutions, universities and single women-only universities. Um, so, uh, there are four partners. Uh, two women-only universities and two co-education universities. Um, this is just a map of Pakistan and um, I don't know how I can show you, but uh, two of our universities were, uh, one was here, one was in this area and two were around this area. So it was in this one particular region, not across the whole of Pakistan, but in sort of, uh, it covered two provinces in Pakistan. Uh, one was the KPK, which is the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and one was the Punjab province. So two big provinces were covered, and these four universities were in those two provinces. But uh, Pakistan has four four provinces, but we couldn't cover the whole region. If you'd like to say something, yes, else? yes. So the the actual you know purpose, the aims of the project itself was just to establish a, a sustainable collaboration between um, two UK universities and four Pakistani um, uh, universities as well and the the whole idea really was to develop a training program a training program which would um, work in a two-way process between colleagues from Pakistan and colleagues from the UK and it, and it was very much wanting to do that so it wasn't about the UK leading the types of training which we wanted to do with colleagues in Pakistan but it was a two-way process and and so we worked with um, it was devised under uh, an undertaking with research partners and it was looking at research capacity so the participants which came on the particular program what we were thinking about were participants which were early careers and and or participants which were perhaps starting a PhD so they could have been early careers or they could have been established academics which were in Pakistan which had may not have traveled outside of that and so they may have got their doctorate inside. So I think that's quite important as well. And it was really to be able to contextualize um, the whole idea of mapping women's um, academics' lives within um, the actual uh, universities itself. So I think that's, that's key. So that was the purpose. 
So from within all the four universities, from each university we selected five early career researchers who became part of the team. So thus the team consisted of 20 young researchers from Pakistan and the four, three member research team from UK. Uh, myself, Victoria and Professor David Petter from University of Leicester. So uh, this was the team of researchers and from the local universities the data was collected by the local research team members, five research teams. So it was a highly collaborative project. It wasn't a single researcher doing data collection or doing the research. It was the team of researchers within each university supported by a member of the core team who was doing data collection from each partner university. And the focus was um, uh, mapping women academics careers in Pakistan in these four, specifically in these four universities. Just a brief um, <coughs> contextual details about Pakistan. Most people would be knowing something about, but probably uh, sometimes uh, uh, things get confused in the media. So just to clarify the things, it is a Muslim society. Uh, some information about literacy rate, it is quite low compared to the international standards and male literacy rate is much higher than females. Pre-university education in the public sector is mostly single sex. In, in the private sector, uh, it's mostly co-educational, but in the public sector, it is mostly single sex. That's pre-university. Uh, segregation is observed mostly from post-primary to pre-university pre levels. Uh, we will have more uh, co-educational institutions in primary education and then at the university level. An interesting phenomena in Pakistan is that women only uh, universities have been in Pakistan since its creation, a lot of universities, but women only, the first woman only university was established in 1998. And that is an interesting phenomena there, and which in itself uh, has been, re needs to be researched why the need was felt for that, what contribution it is making to gender studies and women's career progression. and. Uh, it was tentatively introduced. One university was introduced at the federal government level uh, in the federal capital in 1998. The university, which is currently our partner, main partner, Fatma Chandra <laughs> University. And since then, 12 universities have been established. 12 women only universities have been established in Pakistan, all going very, very successful. Uh, so, that is another phenomenon which is linked with gender and women's career progression. Uh, just to give some uh, sort of an overview of the educational institutions by gender in Pakistan, these are quite recent uh, education statistics from 2013-14 uh, prepared by the government agencies. And uh, this clearly tells you that there is a very, very large female, uh, women-only education sector, there is a very large male-only education sector, then there is again a sizable co-education or mixed education sector and uh, <coughs> with the universities, there are 161 universities in Pakistan at the moment out, out of these 12 universities, although the statistics don't give uh, the name of the women universities numbers, they just say 161 universities <laughs> while all the rest are uh, given by gender, but I personally uh, collected data and I know that there are 12 women only universities currently in Pakistan. So, the question then comes is, where are women uh, in leadership, with specific reference to leadership? And 
the issue is global, as I said earlier. It's, it's not just in Pakistan. It's a global issue. And uh, the European Commission report in 2008 said that only 15% of all professors in the European Union are female. And in, if you look at the, uh, there was another interesting study which said that 88% uh, of professors in UK medical schools are male, mm -hmm. while 60% of medical students are women. So it, it is the issue across the world is why does it happen? Why does this sort of pyramid happen that as we go to the top, there are fewer and fewer and fewer women there? And in comparison to that, there is an interesting phenomenon in Pakistan that if you look at the second bullet point, the segregated educational structure provides spaces for women to exercise leadership and to access leadership. There is a huge single sex or women only education sector where women are educational leaders. All those uh, uh, colleges, female colleges, you see, if you look at, I mean, even if we leave the schools out, because in schools across the world, there we have more women as heads of schools and in senior leadership roles. But if we look even at the degree colleges, I mean, in all those 457 women colleges, female colleges, degree colleges, it will be women who will be principles of those degree-granting colleges. In those intermediate colleges, higher secondary schools, it will all be women educational leaders. And in those 12 universities, again, it is women vice-chancellors. So this is an interesting phenomenon uh, <coughs> with regard to this segregated education structure that it provides spaces for women to access educational leadership. But in those uh, nearly 149 or 50 co-educational universities in Pakistan, only there are three universities in which we have women vice-chancellors in the co-educationals, the first bullet point. Uh, but in the other 12, all the 12 are women vice-chancellors. But the question is that to what extent and how these women exercise their leadership? in these colleges, women-only colleges, in these women-only universities, to what extent cultural and belief systems define how leadership is to be exercised and how they experience leadership. Just to sort of, uh, this was the Asian Development Bank report which gives a sort of uh, uh, brief uh, overview of the society, of the general societal structure in Pakistan and the societal perceptions and patterns of behavior, uh, which, which sets the background within which leadership is exercised, the context. Because they are two, it is a Muslim society, it is an Asian culture, and Consider to a considerable extent society is segregated and gender spaces are conceptually, ideologically divided. Even if practically in the current, particularly in the urban areas, you don't see that, uh, feel that deviant to that extent, but still ideologically there is this deviant uh, operative. And that makes uh, 
the exercise of leadership in the public space and accessing the leadership in the public space quite challenging. In addition to that, there are specific cultural notions such as uh, the concept of sexuality, uh, sexual behavior within Islamic moral code, then the concept of honor or female, female honor or izzat within the Asian cultures, the issue of female mobility within the uh, cultural traditions, uh, concept of parda, parda means sort of covering yourself, uh, uh, all these issues which are common in, in the wider cultural context to a certain degree, they, even if not directly shape the practices, they influence the perceptions, the concepts and the practices as well. So within that context we started this project and we went for data collection for this project. Uh, and uh, would you like to sort of yes, tell yeah. something about the data collection? I'll say something about the data, but can I just take it just one step before yeah, that? Yeah. I think it's really important to understand that um, um, the week, as, as Saida was saying, there was, there was a week in Pakistan and there was a week in the UK, and the week as part of the method, and the week in the, um, Pakistan is where we myself, Saida, and another colleague went and we worked with the colleagues from Pakistan to look at developing research um, skills or, or enhancing the skills which they, which, I had, which they had, which I think is important. And I mentioned that before we talk about the data collection because at the same time it would be the first time they actually worked with somebody like myself because they may have worked with mostly either white colleague or perhaps somebody from Pakistan. And that in itself was a really interesting exchange about a black female working with Pakistani females and, and, and that was something which I think is an important part to um, as, as part of the actual um, uh, discussion. So with, with this then we, we looked at um, doing different types of um, collection and now there was um, the first part was a survey and the survey was done through the first sort of training and we had to, they had to design a questionnaire which would then be um, distributed to the four different universities. But the whole idea was that they, the participants, designed the questionnaire with, our, with, with support from ourselves to work there, and it was a live questionnaire. So that was done in, in 2013, and uh, they were quite comfortable with that because they're quite used to doing surveys. It was, it was sent, and it was sent to, you know, two single sex and two co-education -edu um, um, universities in Pakistan and it focused on, the question actually focused on mapping women, academics and the careers and, and it was distributed to 874 women um, at different stages of their career and 490 completed. So it was, it was actually quite a good response rate um, to do that and we've been analysing that particular data itself. The other part was we had, um, which was more. This was the next part was a bit more complicated for them. They they had to do, they had to do also two pilot interviews in each of those four particular universities, and that was hard 
because many hadn't done or carried out qualitative data, qualitative um, work. And so they did two pilot interviews with, with women academics from each part of the university, which was eight pilot interviews altogether. And, then, and that was done during 2013. And then we moved on to the next part, which was we then asked, and we were involved with 40 other interviews across the four different universities. So you can see the method which has which been developed here. With women academics, and again, at different stages of their career. And that was during 2014. Um, this, this, we spent, imagine, a week, a week, and a week. And, and this particular part here was where we really spent some real time looking at qualitative and how you gather input, you know, um, interviews and how you develop interviews and how you gather the data from interviews itself. So that, that was that particular part as well. Okay. The, the thing about sort of this specific sort of design and the thing which really informed the methodology was that it was not just us doing a research. Essentially, the project was for research capacity building within the Pakistani universities. So the primary aim was to develop early career researchers in Pakistan, to develop them to the sort of become researchers of international standards, where they could be part of international research projects. And to contextualize that, we had we decided to have this specific focus on gender and leadership because of our own specific research areas and also because the project was focused on women and because of the cultural context of Pakistan for women it would have women researchers it wouldn't have been easy to do any data collection from male uh, academics so a lot of things which constrained the methodology, how to go about sampling, how to go about data collection, how to design the whole process. So you see, design and methodology are never independent things. They are subject to constraints, contextual constraints, they are subject to the aims of the project, to the design of the project and to the conditions from the funders also, what they want and how they want it. So, yes, yes. I was going to say, also it's evolving. So the methodology wasn't static. It became, it was evolving as over a year, year at year, we kind of changed it slightly to fit what we wanted to in how, what was coming out of um, the first lot of data and everything else. So it was actually evolving, which was really exciting. So just step by step, because first we involved those young researchers in developing a survey, how to design the questionnaire, how to conduct the survey, how to do data collection for that, how to record the data, how to, prepare data sets so that it was a whole sort of process going on generating data and at the same time training the young researchers and then the piloting uh, uh, pilot interviews were much more challenging because qualitative research is not very common in Pakistan it's mostly quantitative I mean now the, for over the last few years it has been developing but still it is a very early field so we have to focus more on the training in doing qualitative data collection and developing qualitative data collection tools as well. So we specifically then did piloting to uh, train the young researchers how to do that. And it were the teams, uh, not individual researchers doing piloting, but teams of two who were doing piloting in their respective universities. And then the final uh, data collection, which was 40 interviews in the universities, which were done as face-to-face, one-to-one interviews and which were um, the main uh, tool for data collection. 
So, uh, just to give uh, some idea of the sample for the survey, uh, that first column is the universities, and you can see there are two women only, two co-ed universities, and then the grades or positions of the participants, lecturers, assistant professors, associate professors, professors, total number, in, and that is women in these, in the co-ed also, we have just given the numbers of women, and in the women only, they are obviously women. So, the survey questionnaire was administered to all the female population uh, academics in the four universities. Uh, you can see that <laughs> in uh, this, uh, it is interesting to see how few are the number of, there is no woman professor in uh, Hazara University, which was a co-educational university. There is not a single woman professor there. In other co-education, there are two. But in the, this um, uh, first university, which is one of the largest universities, again there are only uh, two women professors. So uh, it, it is it's really it's really difficult to see why it is that there are so few women professors progressing to these um, senior positions or senior grades. And it was from among these women that later we did interviews as well. Survey findings, if you would say something about that. Okay, yes. So the, I can see it right on here. So the uh, actual, um, quite, just fine. The, the actual findings which, um, which we got from the surveys itself, um, these initial ones, which was most women, a female academic, had high professional self-efficiency and um, were intrinsically motivated in their roles. I mean, that's something which comes out in, in, in lots, lots of data around gender and leadership. It was also challenging to adjust and balance home and work responsibilities. This was something which was coming out time and time again through the survey and also when we look at the interviews as well. Um, nepotism and high workload impacted on professional progression in the workplace and what, and what that happened with that. And research is now very important in, in for career progression. They really kind of looked at, for us to move up the ladder, we needed to be able to get involved with um, research itself, research and how that progresses um, in research. Teaching responsibilities and family responsibilities both cut into women's research time because if they're thinking that, you know what, this is what we need to be able to do because if we're going to get up to becoming a professor or, or what, what, whatever their goal is, we need to be able to do this. However, the teaching responsibilities and also the family responsibilities cut into that and that's something which of course is what we as um, leaders in, in, in gender find difficult. Academics and women-only universities had opportunities to build professional networks. And this was true when I was out there, you could see that. You can actually see this taking place, which accelerated their career progression, progression and better childcare facilities at workplace as well, um, was another point which came out. As I said earlier, that uh, women-only institutions seem to be very supportive of women. And you can see that these, these were specifically the last two points came up in the survey from uh, participants uh, from women-only universities. And the two things which they really emphasized, and this is just a very brief glimpse of the data, but two things which they really emphasized, uh, enablers in women-only institutions. One was networking. And considering that the Muslim society is, even when there are women working with men side by side or in the public space, even then there are sort of cultural restrictions and constraints, how to interact with each other, how you communicate with each other, and all those to a certain extent constrain uh, professional networking across the gender divide. So they are generally 
marginalized when they are in co-educational institutions or co-educational or mixed uh, sex organizations, no matter what type of those organizations are. But in the case of women-only institutions, they have this advantage that they could network easily among women academics and they could develop their own networks, they could have their own um, support system without any threat of any sort of cultural inappropriateness or uh, not being culturally uh, on the right uh, pattern. And the second thing was, another thing which was, which, which was rather surprising for us as researchers also, that childcare facilities, these women, they perhaps realized being women themselves throughout the, uh, in different leadership roles, they realized the significance. But why was it that in the co-educational institutions, there were not really childcare facilities provided for women? And this was something which was surprising and strange that although a large number of women academics worked in co-educational universities, the facilities for childcare were not available in those, while in women-only institutions there were better childcare facilities which facilitated women working long hours in the universities. I think something else to add to this as well, which was um, which alarmed me quite a lot, is, is the fact, and, and this was survey but also the qualitative interview data, is the fact that many of the women which were um, either in academic positions or aspiring to become um, high-level academics were also struggling or grappling with um, whether to, you know, um, whether to have children, whether to be married, and that was something which was quite striking for me when I was in Pakistan, is that the things which many female academics maybe grapple with in the UK is that fact of you know, if, if I, you know, when I get married, or if I get married, or I've got children, I haven't got children. There was quite a few which, uh, women which were in high-level positions which weren't married and which didn't have children. And I think that was something which I, I kind of, I held, I, I really have still th been thinking about every time I go back to, to Pakistan. Right, and some of the interview findings uh, that uh, I mean, the interview data, as I said, was collected by the teams of local researchers within those universities. They collected the data, they transcribed the data. Uh, the data that they collected, uh, there was a lot of code switching within that. I mean, uh, there would be sentences in English and then sentences in Urdu, which is the uh, national language of Pakistan. So, a lot of code switching, which made transcriptions very hard. Uh, uh, because uh, transcription then would mean translating as well. So uh, that's the reason that we, the UK team, hasn't yet been able to go through the whole data in detail because transcriptions have been done, but translation of those bits which are in local language, they, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, so we have just picked the things that could be easily picked. Uh, the dominant themes, the dominant uh, features uh, that, that have been highlighted by, by different participants. And we have tried to sort of bring them under some main major themes as, as sort of clusters. Uh, and one thing which, which, uh, which uh, very clearly emerges through the data is the cultural patterns of behavior. What is culturally appropriate? whether you are in a co-educational university or whether you are in a woman-only university. Being a woman, 
your behavior and perhaps that can apply to men also in certain to a certain extent that your behavior has to be culturally appropriate and which which fits into what Anne was saying yes <laughs> about the the women in from the African countries you talk, talk to uh, I think the, this, these societies, which are more sort of collective societies, community-based societies, where perhaps everyone knows everyone, uh, and they are not very individual societies, and uh, they, there is this sort of a, uh, policing and monitoring of behavior uh, across the groups, across the communities, whether that is professional communities or whether that is just cultural communities. And that, uh, in a way, uh, makes people very, very careful about how, uh, to, uh, how they are behaving or are they sort of being culturally correct or not. Uh, and that determines a lot of professional behavior and professional practices. That uh, it's not just the rules and regulations that govern how you practice your role or how you exercise your role. It's also those unwritten cultural laws also which uh, influence your behavior and your practices. So within that, I mean, there is obviously being a specific uh, Muslim society and Asian society, not just Muslim but also an Asian society uh, in Pakistan, there is a lot of stereotyping about what uh, should be the role of women and what should be the place of women within the society. But interestingly, because of the, we will come to next is the, because of the religious orientation, uh, those who have more understanding of religion, they claim, they make claims, those women make claims to better equality, to higher equal rights, because there is an understanding that the religion allows men and women equal rights. So, the more educated they become, the stronger their claim becomes of being religious and through being religious they make stronger claims of equality. And that's why I raised that question earlier that how do they reconcile the things in the case of Africa. Because here it came through very clearly that, you see this, uh, if you go to the second theme and second bullet point there, the good Muslim woman, by sort of uh, adopting this identity of a good Muslim woman and by performing within this identity, they were making claims of equality, which, which allowed them to have sort of claims up to all those things which men could claim within, within that framework of good Muslim woman, although there was still that sort of framework of good Muslim woman and that was very subjectively defined, what is a good Muslim woman differing maybe from groups to groups and woman to woman, but still that in a way enabled them to reconcile uh, this uh, gender with uh, equality. And, but certainly within the cultural context there was a very clear sort of gendered power relations uh, in the wider society. Uh, I mean, nowhere the societies are sort of homogeneous societies and not mon sort of same sort of monolithic society. There are variations. There are, there are uh, from particularly with reference to different socio-economic groups, there are uh, communities where there are strong, very, very strong gender differences and in roles, in uh, power, in having rights 
where women, there will be certain communities in certain parts of Pakistan where women won't have even right to education or they won't even have right to have do jobs or right to make decisions about their own lives. But again then there are, uh, there is a very large uh, percentage of women in particularly who are educated, who are in um, uh, socioeconomically higher class, who have, uh, if, I mean, who would even have equal rights to men to make their own decisions, to make their own uh, claims and also claiming the equal rights. So gendered power relations is very hard to generalize that this is the situation across Pakistan and I think it will be very difficult to generalize across even in the Western liberal societies that there are equalities. They, they depend on a lot of factors, so perhaps that's where intersectionality also again comes in, mm -hmm. kicks in that uh, there are a lot of factors, social, economic um, factors which influence how gender is being constructed. Gender is not sort of neutrally constructed just because one is a man and another is a woman. Uh, women with certain socio-economic class uh, background will be much more powerful in Pakistan and many other countries also as compared to men with some different socio-economic backgrounds and many other factors kicking in. But on the whole, uh, yes, there, there are certain uh, restrictions for women <laughs> which, which perhaps women try to resolve and that, that's, uh, I'm trying to theorize that within that, that they, they try to resolve that within this concept of good Muslim women, uh, that what, whatever sort of, uh, sort of self-disciplining that they are doing, they are doing it because they want to identify themselves as good Muslim women and then to empower themselves as good Muslim women. So again it is a sort of uh, contradiction but at the same time and something which they feel is empowering them by, by becoming good Muslim women. They are imposing some sort of discipline on themselves but at the same time that discipline is enabling them to become more powerful, to feel, become empowered. Uh, to exercise some sort of authority and power over others who are not good Muslim <laughs> in that also, sense. But also the data, to me, the data spoke a lot about um, about the pushback and there was a lot of pushback in relation to what, uh, what um, good Muslim women look like and, and I think that was actually really interesting when you, when you actually start reading that data, um, the interpretation of um, really kind of what what a feminist is and there was a lot of discussion around as a woman and as a feminist and what that actually means and I think that's actually quite exciting and the more we kind of start to go and drill down in the data and I and start to analyze that data that was something which we were working with quite a lot and that's what was coming out in the in the training sessions as well was around this you know what it is to be a feminist what it is to be a, a, a leader and a woman of um, and, and a Pakistani female leader, and that was exciting. That was really exciting. About that. Just got just over five minutes. Okay. Seven. Eight. <laughs> we finish oh, at thirty. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. So then, besides that, there were certainly some structural barriers as well because of the segregation. There is uh, particularly uh, at the administrative level within the education department and at the political level there are more men than women so that in a way again created those sort of uh, excess issues uh, and again appropriate cultural uh, behavior whether to what extent women can move into those uh, spaces. 
but, but also in this, sorry, I'm sorry, but also in this, what, what revealed in some of the papers, which, you know, some of the interview data which they came out with, is if a woman was going into a particular department mm -hmm. and they were identified to go into that department, how other women became threatened of this other woman coming into the department. And it could have been because the woman, this particular woman had just got their PhD outside the country. So they could have gone off to America, they could have gone off to the UK, they could have gone somewhere, and they've come back in and they've been given a particular position. It was as though the other woman, the other women in the department, instead of creating a space where they felt positive and look, look what this person's bringing in, it became a bed of threatened, threatened behavior. And that was something which some of the interview data started to talk about around professional threat and what that actually meant. And, uh, and again, we haven't actually analyzed that, but that was some of the raw data which is coming through quite a few different transcripts about this professional threat and what that means. And about sort of formal informal pressures, there, there is uh, uh, the sort of political structure that works in Pakistan. There is a lot of political and semi-political pressures which influence how uh, and how women exercise, women as well as men exercise their leadership role. Uh, but one thing which is uh, sort of a great factor in, in uh, exercising leadership is the social and family networks. The stronger a family background is, the person, if a person belongs to a strong family background with strong social networks, they, the, whether that is a female or a male, the lead, exercising leadership and practicing leadership becomes a very different phenomena, uh, irrespective of gender. And, so, and, uh, yes, yes. I was also going to say that one of the things that surprised me quite a lot, which came out of the data, is how the fathers, how the fathers were the role models of the women which were mm. becoming leaders. Mm. And I thought that was, I think, because, you know, when you're, you know, one has to, you know, acknowledge the fact of our own biases when we're in a country which we've never been to before, we're actually influenced by a lot of social media and everything else, is the fact of, wow, so the fathers are actually supporting and they're working with their daughters to be as high as they can. Which, which again was you know something which I didn't I didn't know I wasn't yeah. and, and that that is sort of in that society that is sort of your extended family networks mm -hmm. and uh, having a daughter or a sister uh, or a wife even um, uh, exercising a leadership role uh, becomes sometimes a sort of source of power for the family and the whole family engages in that to make that a success. So, uh, very, very complex factors, very complex factors which influence how leadership not only is accessed but also how it is exercised and women in the similar positions might exercise that role very differently depending the, on their backgrounds, on their social networks, on, uh, on their personal influences and besides, I mean, having the sort of leadership skills and that's why that we are not emphasizing the skills because there are these other factors which emerge as much stronger than actually having the organizational skills and the leadership skills. So there are some quotes also which uh, perhaps you can have a look at. <laughs> So just uh, I mean, we really haven't started analyzing data ourselves. It is how it has been transcribed by our researchers. 
So we are just looking at it at the moment and we plan to go into detailed analysis uh, in this next term uh, when our Pakistani researchers are visiting UK. So we are sitting together and doing the detailed analysis. But it just gives you an idea um, of what, what is happening there. See, the, in the second bullet point, the host is support from home. That's also a pressure. Yeah, oh, it yeah. is. It is. It is also a pressure. I mean, one, one of the women participants had just had twins. She had five children, and the, and the, and the youngest set were just a set, a set of twins, but she was determined that she was going to be part and participate in each one of the, you know, the training program which was just happened. Yeah. Um, you know, with her twins, which were just maybe two months old. And one was looked after by the maternal grandmother and the other by paternal grandmother. So <laughs> that works. Uh, the, another thing which came up was for research. I mean, the, there were some very practical issues that they raised um, and uh, again some gender specific issues. But just to get some idea, uh, I mean obviously uh, Pakistani universities just over the last 10 years have been engaging in research. It is a very recent phenomenon getting into research. So there is lack of facilities, lack of mentoring and support for research, lack of research culture there, lack of incentives. Uh, uh, and because of the particular socio-cultural context, a lot of nepotism uh, happening and favoritism happening in who is doing research and who is getting the funding. Because funding comes mostly from government agencies and it's not like we apply here and we make the bids here. And severe. And this is me as an outsider. I'm an outsider looking in because I'm, you know, I'm not a Pakistani, so I'm looking in. But also severe competitiveness mm, mm. between the, the the women I was working working with in relation to the departments and across the universities. I mean, severe competitiveness. I mean, we have competitiveness, but that's even, you know, that they they really are competitive in trying to get. So, a few more quotes which will give you some idea of. Uh, how the issues were happening about around research because there was a very strong realization that now for career progression in two leadership positions they need to be successful in research, they need to excel in research. But they were really uh, confused how to go about that, there were a lot of issues that they raised about research, a lot of issues about research were raised uh, and how to balance that. I mean, the same issues that we have here about balancing research with other uh, academic activities. But they were perhaps because of being at very initial stage and not being familiar with how to do research, that added to their challenges. Uh, uh, so, uh, I'll show you some of the pictures of the group as well, yeah. uh, our uh, activities. Uh, during the projects. And then we will welcome many more. This was the team of researchers. That was the first year. Twenty, was, was twenty researchers who, first year. Mm, the first year that we started with, uh, twenty young researchers. And she's, with she's the team. She's the vice chancellor of, the, of that. And on this and, side, and you can see we encourage. We've got people absolutely <laughs> coming with their babies there and their partners because they'd be, you know, coming with their partners. And again, sort of cultural issues on traveling and mobility, uh, on uh, responsibility towards childcare, so all these things.
but there is definitely a very strong determination to progress and an increasing sense of equality there is that that comes through very strongly a very increasing sense of equality uh, and for that they go back to religion that religion ideologically gives men and women equality so where is that equality and in search for that there is this struggle going on so that's Thank you, you very much. Thank you.